picked out for tonight. If you do, you can raise your hand and one of our, our men in the back will be here. Kyle has an opportunity to get you one of those. Bulletins are uh, outlined tonight. Take your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. Um, this is a year where we have uh, put in front of you as a church our desire for you to read through the Bible. And we did this five years. Can you believe it's been five years since we did this last? 2019, uh, we did a read through the Bible. And we do things a little bit different than some read through the Bible programs. And there's a reason that we do it this way. There are reasons that other program. Most programs, if you were to read through the Bible, will do a reading of the Old Testament, the New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs all in one day. I understand that. In fact, you can buy a, a read the Bible through in a year Bible. I don't know if you've seen that. It's called a one-year Bible. I had once the first time I ever read through the Bible was with a one-year Bible, and uh, that one is broken up by dates instead of by chapters and verses. And so you can, you can find, in fact, my mom used to say that a recurring nightmares of hers was that she was trying to lead somebody to the Lord, and all she had was a one-year Bible, and she could never find the verses in the one-year Bible. It's a side note. What we do here um, is, is because our goal is to get a, a full grasp of the Scripture straight through. It's a little bit challenging, but our goal is for you to read the Bible cover to cover rather than bouncing around a lot or reading a chronological read cover to cover straight through the Bible and get a grasp of the, of the whole flow of Scripture. And I have challenged you, if you've never done this before, it may seem impossible, but it's not. It really is not, it's not impossible. It's very, very doable. And um, I, I, after we did this five years ago, I met, there were several people, uh, several retirees, let me put it that way, who spoke to me uh, personally, and they said, uh, I, I have never ever read the Bible through, and this has been an unbelievable experience. Um, I feel like for the first time in my life, I'm understanding what, what the whole Bible's about. So I would encourage you to do this. Every Christian ought to read through the Bible. Every Christian ought to know the Bible. And in light of that, what we are doing to help you stay on track is on Sunday nights. There are a few Sunday nights throughout the year. We're not going to be doing this due to special services or special speakers, etc. But we, we are going to be preaching a text from your reading that week. So if you had started this past week, you would have read through uh, this passage we're going, I'm going to preach on today. And so all the pastors are on board. Uh, Eric and Drew will be doing this as well. And when they have our opportunity to preach, we'll be preaching from this, from a text, from that Scripture. Now, maybe a big chunk like I'm doing tonight, I'm doing a rather large section of Scripture uh, tonight, or maybe just a few verses. It doesn't have to be the whole section, obviously, because you'll be reading a massive section of Scripture, but it's something from your reading. So my encouragement to you as you do this project this year, I hope you will, is to try to stay on track as much as possible. Let's just say that you forget about it for several days and you get behind. Uh, I would almost rather you skip to where we are today and try to stay up to date and then go back and catch up as you can so that you are reading along with everyone else than be like three months behind everyone, if that makes sense. So if you, if you, if you lose, lose it in a little bit in the middle of the year or something like that, try to catch up that's, that's really my, my challenge for you this year, and I, I really hope that you do this. I hope that it's, a, it's an encouragement for you, and I hope that it will be a blessing in many ways. Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6, as we look at this, the title for the message tonight is God's Judgment and Salvation. Genesis 6 uh, through 8, we see the story of Noah. Noah is a story of a true man, a real man. Uh, as you study cultures around the world, you'll notice that almost every culture has some sort of flood story in it that involves a single family or a single righteous man in a boat and a gigantic flood that wipes out 
the population of the earth. It all, I believe, all those stories, these legends, point back to the true story given to us by God in His Word. And when you account for the, uh, when you understand the story of Noah, is not some sort of allegory. It is a real story of a real man in a real time. It explains a lot of the geological structures around the world. It explains a lot of the things we see uh, today. But you know, the, the point of today's message is not to get into the, the scientific side of the Noah and the flood story. We could do that, but I am not a scientist, and I'm not going to try to, to, try to go that route. Instead, what we're going to look at today um, you know, there are plenty of information. If you want information on that, you can, you can talk to me. I'm sure I can point you in the right direction. Many, many resources. The point tonight is to introduce you to a theme that begins in Genesis and works its way throughout Scripture. And we're going to see as Christians how we can relate to this, this theme, especially in this passage of Scripture. And one of the great themes that develops throughout the Scripture is this, that God has righteous judgment and gracious salvation. That God is a righteous judge and a gracious Savior. And that both of those are, are absolutely essential for us to understand, to grasp, to embrace. We see God as the righteous judge who is a gracious Savior because He's are tied together. He is the great judge who brings righteous judgment against those who rebel against Him. And He's also the gracious Savior who rescues those who believe in Him. We're going to see that laid out explicitly in the story of Noah. Let's ask God for blessing as we look into His Word tonight. Father, we are so thankful for the history book of the world you've given to us, how you have explained to us uh, where, how things have happened in the past so we might uh, respond accordingly. Help us to learn from Noah's life tonight. Help us to learn about your character. And I pray, God, as we, as we leave this place, we would be encouraged uh, by the God who not only judges wickedness, but rescues, rescues people who put their trust and faith in Him. Bless our service tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 6. First thing we see in Genesis 6 is this truth that God warns and provides. Well, all these titles today are about God, about God's character. God warns and provides. And why, what's the setting for this? Well, we see in chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, the corruption of all flesh. It's spelled out to us in a somewhat cryptic and difficult to understand passage. In fact, there is much debate over the meaning of these verses we're going to read in a moment. The identities of each of these groups is debated, what they did. I'm going to give you just a brief rundown with the understanding uh, that uh, about these things that good, good men differ. Uh, in fact, you could, you probably, if you, if you um, uh, polled our pastoral staff, you probably have different opinions on this as well. Let's look at what the passages say happened just as a prelude before God brings the worldwide flood in verse 1. Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. We have here, let's explain first what the Bible says happens, then we'll talk about different views. Number one, it says the sons of God and the daughters of men existed here in verse one and two. Then sons of God saw these daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they married them. They took wives for themselves. Look at verse three. It says, the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, and his, day, his days will be 120 years. The next thing we see in verse 3 is that God's response to the wickedness of verses 1 and 2 is that God declares his spirit will no longer strive with men. Uh, first of all, why, he says, because they're mortal, because they're fleshly. What does it mean to strive with man? Well, strive is a difficult word. In Hebrew, it is very challenging, and it might even mean to abide with or to live with. My flesh shall not, my spirit shall not live with men. 
anymore. And that might explain why he means that uh, his flesh, or spirit, sorry, shall be away from man. And that reason, uh, perhaps, is why they will not live as long, is one of the interpretations. Another thing about 120 years is this talking about the fact that from now on, no one will live past 120 years. Probably not, because after this, uh, after this uh, is given, we still see people who live after oh, more than 120 years. So more than likely, what this is saying is that there's going to be 120 years between this declaration and the time when judgment will come. That's probably what he's saying here. Their, their days will be 120 years. Now, look at verse 4. He says, There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Apparently, it's depravity of man and women led to giants being on the earth in those days. Now, the word in those days, he's talking about the ancient times, the times of Noah in those days. But you'll notice he says uh, in those days, things aren't quite like they are today. There was a difference about times in those days. Now, the word giants is a very fascinating word. Some of your translations might even have a different word in there, and they're just transliterating the Hebrew word, which is Nephilim. And Nephilim is a word that either means fallen ones or it could mean great ones. Um, the early Greek translation of the Bible called the Septuagint translated Nephilim as giants or gigantes. Now, it seems like these are talking about offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men having relations. Are we all together so far? We good? You see what's happening? He says, there was common in the time of Noah, it says, in these days this happened, but less frequently later, he says, and also later, there was a time afterward that this happened as well. So there was something about this union of the sons of God with the daughters of men that apparently produced great men of renown in the past, these mighty men of old. And so what exactly are we talking about? This is a very interpreting, a very uh, challenging interpreting, interpretation for this passage. And in fact, the main question has centered around the identities of these people. Who are the daughters of men? Who are the sons of God? The first view is that the sons of God is a title used for the godly line of Seth, while the daughters of men are a title for the ungodly line. And we've seen this in the, uh, the, the, the Genesis chapters 1 through 3, and even in chapter 5, you see different lines of people. And you, so you have here an intermarriage of godly people with ungodly people. Perhaps that is in view. There are other uh, subviews under that. But the main view, number two, is what I'm calling the traditional or traditional Jewish view or the supernatural view, which says that they believe this, this view takes that the sons of God, which it, most of the time when the Bible uses that phrase, I, maybe I shouldn't say most of the time, many times when the Bible uses that phrase, and often in the ancient literature that is uh, written about the same time as the Old Testament, this is referring to spirit beings such as angels or demons. So sons of God would be like a spiritual, spiritual being. And, and so, therefore, what this view says is this is speaking of some wicked angels, some wicked beings, who, who leave heaven to come in some kind of human body to marry women, marry human women. And this union produces a corrupted human beings. This is why uh, the verses tell us that in those days there were Nephilim or giants who were in the earth. These were men of renown, mighty men in the ancient world, and they might even still exist in later times. So you see, if you read this passage straight through, two radically different views on this, two radically different perspective. And, and, I, and this is, I was telling someone this week, 
here, here's the interesting thing about Sunday nights, right? So Sunday mornings, I, we deal with like top shelf theology. It's like everything everybody should agree with. And if you don't agree with something I'll say on Sunday morning, you, you probably, I mean, it's generally we're all on the same page. We should be. Sunday nights is where we get into some stuff that we can disagree on. It's okay, right? Have we agreed on that much so far? So, so if we disagree on this, I'm not mad at you. You're not mad at me, right? Okay, so it's okay to have different views, different opinions, and I really don't want to know after the service who agrees with me and who doesn't agree with me. It's okay. It's okay to say, Marshall, you're out to lunch. Say, just say, Pastor Marshall, you're out to lunch. Be a little respectful, right? But it's okay. I mean, it's all right, because this is, this is, these are different views, different opinions, and I've written papers on this in, in school and everything. Okay, I say all that to say that, believe it or not, I kind of side with the second view. And this, and that I think that the, the perspective here, as you read it, it seems to say that in those days, there seemed to be some sort of weird stuff going on between some angelic beings and some people. And whether or not you agree with that, that's fine, but it would explain, it, it, there are echoes of this even in the book of Jude, in the book of Second Peter, there are indications that possibly angels left there, there, where they were supposed to be, and they were mixing with people, and this was really, really bad. In fact, we talked about... Um, uh, flood stories being in almost every culture. You know what else is in every other culture? There are lots of cultural stories about demigods or people uh, having relations, having sexual relations with angelic beings. In fact, there are even New Age people today who claim that they have relations with spirit guides and spirit beings. It is not something that I think is necessarily happening all the time. I don't know if, the, who knows uh, all the implications of these kinds of things. But what makes it very clear in this particular passage is that, is that God dealt with this very harshly, whatever was going on here. And it seems there's a tie-in between the, the, the weird stuff going on between these beings and the giants existing and these men of renown and all flesh, he says, being corrupted. And so the wickedness of man, look at verse 5. He said the wickedness was seen by God. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great, mankind was great in the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. If you say, Pastor Marshall, that's just too weird for me. I understand. I understand that, that perspective. I understand if you think that's a little too strange. But you know, when, when people get perverted, perverted things happen. And I think that's exactly what was going on. That's my perspective again. I could change my perspective in like two weeks, so don't hold me to it, okay? And he says he is, that goals were perverted, their thinking were perverted, their actions were perverted, their, everything was twisted, so much so that God, who lovingly made Adam and Eve and breathed into their nostrils the breath of life, who formed them with his hands, like God formed man from the dust of the ground. He doesn't do that to any other creature. God speaks and they're made, but God loves man. He forms man and makes him in his own image. And look at the verse, verse 6, and this shows you how bad things have gotten. It says, and the Lord was sorry. He was grieved that he had made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. God saw the despicable things going on among mankind. He was like, what is going on down there? This is what we call an anthropopathism. It's a fancy word that means that it's using human language to describe the emotions and the feelings of God in a way that we can process. In the same way that it says God's hand is not short, it says God's sorry here. He looks upon mankind and he is sorry, he is grieved in his heart. So he makes a decision. Look at verse 7. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made 
them. The corruption of all flesh was disastrous. How bad you think things are today, they weren't nearly as bad as they were in the days of Noah. Think about how much wickedness someone can get into if they're living for 900 years. Think how much trouble people can get into if they're living in the multiple hundreds of years. And, and, and it seems to be at this time that, geo, that God had made the earth in such a way that, that, the, that the earth had not, nothing had, it had not yet rained. And so there seemed, a lot of scientists believe there was some sort of canopy that covered the earth and created tropical uh, environments all over the globe, even, even before there, there was uh, uh, the ice age and all these things, that there was actually good, uh, people could live all over the globe. And with that in mind, when we find this evidence even today, again, I'm not going to get too much into the science of it, but in all of this, God decides to destroy the globe, destroy the earth, but he shows grace to one man. We see the grace shown to one man in verse 8. It says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Against all odds, God sees a man named Noah, and it says he found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Hebrew language is amazing. There's lots of wordplay going on in this. I'm just going to point out a couple. Number one, the word Noah is the word Noah, and Noah and grace are inverts of each other. So grace is chen, and Noah is noach. So it says, Noah found chen in the eyes of the Lord. It's a play on words here that Noah found grace or found favor in the eyes of the Lord. His name, Noah's name, also means rest, and we'll find out more about that in a moment. Grace shown to one man. God sees a man and shows him grace. The next thing we see is the provision of salvation, beginning in verse 9. We see the contrast between Noah and his corrupt world. It says this is the genealogy or the book of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Think about the righteous and just Noah, whose perfect who walks with God, and the earth is a corrupt place. You can walk with God in corrupt places. You can be one who follows Christ and follows the Lord, even if everything around you is going the other direction. And I think this needs to be said in today's world, that you need to stand out in a world that is corrupt. The world that is corrupt around you does not need to corrupt you. That's what happened with Noah. He had all flesh had been corrupted, and then the conversation with Noah, the most amazing thing happened here in verse 13, because God saw Noah. Noah found grace in his eyes. God decided to tell Noah what was about to happen. He told him about the judgment that was coming, and he provided a way of salvation. Look at verse 13. God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, covered inside and outside with pitch, and this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, you shall finish it, cubit from above, and set the door of the ark on its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh, which is breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. God tells Noah why the ark must be built. God is going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy everything that breathes. Everything that has the breath of life will be destroyed. This is a story of massive judgment against wickedness. But notice the salvation. 
that God says, in the midst of this destruction, you will be saved if you obey and build this ark. And he tells him how to build it. He tells him what to do. And then look at verse 18. He establishes a covenant. Now, a covenant is a very important promise made between two individuals that involves obligation and blessing. Look at verse 18. I will establish my covenant with you. He says, if you obey, if you go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you and keep them alive. You shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten. You shall gather it to yourself. It shall be food for you and for them. This is the first use of the word covenant in the Bible. And it's here where God makes a promise to Abraham. He says, I'm going to ask a lot of you, but if you do this, I will save you. The protection would be given only for those in the ark. A lot of people have asked, you mean that that he carried two of every species of animal on the ark? It doesn't say that. It says he brought two of every kind of animal on the ark. We don't know how big these animals would have been. They could have been smaller animals. They could have been hibernating. We don't know all the details behind it, but we know that God rounded these animals up and brought them to Noah, and Noah was to bring them on the ark and to feed them and to keep them alive while the ark was floating. How did Noah respond to this challenge? How would you have responded to this challenge? I think about the times my wife and I are sitting down to do a project around the house, and I have to sit down and calculate the cost, how much time it's going to take me, and all the problems I'm going to face along the way, and then I double it, you know, because you think, okay, this is how much it's going to cost, this is how much time it's going to take, I just double everything that normally is about right. And I think to myself, do I really want to do this right now? Is this really something I want to take on? I mean, think about it. I have so much to do. Think about what Noah was being asked to do, build an ark. Go take on a project, Noah. Be laughed at. Be scorned by everyone around you. People are going to say, what are you doing? What's the point of having an ark in the middle, of here, in the middle out here? There's no, there's no water nearby. How are you going to get that thing to the water? And he has the opportunity. The Bible says he's a preacher of righteousness. And while he is building the ark, he is preaching the truth to people, and people are mocking him over and over again. Think about Noah's righteousness and his willingness to believe God. It says in verse 22, thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. It repeats it twice. Noah did what God said. Noah did what God said. He obeyed God completely. Number one, God warns and provides. Number two, God saves and judges. Genesis 7 tells the story of Noah continuing that God saves and judges. First, very simply, God saves. There's a command to go in the ark. He says, go into the completed ark you and your household. Then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I've seen you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven of every clean animal, male and female, two of each animals that are unclean, a male and a female, seven of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of the earth. Why would these animals need to come into the ark? Well, God makes it clear. The judgment would come against the whole earth. This is not a local flood. This is a worldwide flood, or else Noah wouldn't need to build an ark with animals in it. If it was just a local flood, just get a little boat for himself. But no, he has to put animals on that ark because without him, without the ark, the animals themselves wouldn't survive. Look at verse 4. He says in chapter 7, verse 4, For after seven more days I will cause it to rain the earth forty days and forty nights. I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. Noah's response to this coming judgment is consistent with his character we've seen so far. It says, Noah did according to all the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters were on the earth. In fact, in 2 Peter, as I mentioned earlier, 2 Peter 2, 5, 
He says, it did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people. Notice the description of Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Think about all the times he was preaching while he was building. Let's keep going in verse 7. It says here in chapter 7, verse 7, So Noah with his sons, his wife, his son's wife, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and everything that creeps on the earth. Two by two they went in the ark. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth in the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month, the 17th day of the month. On the day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were open and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Seems that Noah was on the ark about seven days, about a week, before it began to rain. And the Bible actually describes it happening from the bottom up and then the top down. It says, the fountains of the deep broke open. And as the fountains of the deep broke open, apparently there were water stores underneath the earth that somehow uh, ruptured. There was volcanic activity. There were earthquakes, uh, huge seismic activity as the water came from below. And then it says the waters of heaven or the, the windows of heaven opened. And we might think of that as that canopy I was mentioning before. And it says it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Verse 13, on the same day, Noah and Noah's son, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after their kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. They went into the, they went into the ark after, or to Noah, two by two, of all flesh, which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, the Lord shut him in. Look at verse 16. This is key. I highlighted this in my Bible that God shut them in. Two reasons for this. Number one, God is the one who is providing safety for them and protection against the outside. And two, God is preventing anyone else from getting in. Because the decision had been made, the judgment had been declared, God had preached through Noah judgment coming upon these people, and all the people who heard the preaching of righteousness rebelled and said, no, you're crazy, you've lost your mind, Noah. And when the time, the door was shut, I wonder how many people had changed their mind. At that time, it was too late. God says that he shut the door and he shut them in. Look at verse 17. We'll see God judging. Stunning detail. We see the judgment on the whole earth. The flood was on the earth 40 days, it says. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose above the earth. For 40 days straight, rain came down from heaven. And that's very possible if you have a canopy of vapor over the whole earth and the sky that collapses and pours down upon the earth. Describes waters prevailing and increasing. Verse 19, the waters prevailed exceedingly so that the high hills were covered. And they prevailed 15 cubits upward, the mountains were covered. This is written from Noah's perspective as he's almost looking out of the window of the ark. We don't know if this is the case, but it looks like, I mean, he's giving us the step by step. First, the hills are covered, and then the mountains are covered, so the whole earth is covered. It grows higher and higher so that all the hills under heaven were covered. Verse 21, all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And every man, think about that, every man, woman and child, was killed, was dead because of their rebellion, their violence, their wickedness, their immorality and rejection of God. All in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. God who put the spirit of life, who put the breath of life in man, takes that breath away by drowning in a flood of water. Someone asked me recently as we were talking about this passage, can you imagine the sound of the people wanting to get in the ark after the doors had closed? 
Can you imagine the pounding once the waters began to rise and people saw that Noah's preaching was truth and at that point it was too late? Can you imagine how Noah felt? Can you imagine how the people felt to know that he was right and that God is a God of righteous judgment? Verse 23, so he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing, bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive and the waters prevailed on the earth 100 in 50 days. For 150 days, the waters prevailed on the earth. Skip Tilton has had many times here he's talked about the flood. He's, he's described how possibly with so much water and the terraforming that was happening on the earth, the tectonic plates breaking apart, the, the formation of mountains and whole um, uh, layers upon layers of dirt and sludge and mud and all that, that coal that was being formed and all the things that happened for those 150 days. And all that is happening while Noah is lonely by himself in a boat. And when he's by himself in a boat, there's no indication that God speaks to him at all for those 150 days. We don't know, but it doesn't say he does. Noah is by himself in a boat, and then we have the first indication of anything in chapter 8 and verse 1. Look at chapter 8 and verse 1. We see this, that God remembers. And the God who judges is the God who remembers, and God remembers Noah. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him on the ark, and God made the wind pass over the earth and the water subsided. Now, the word remembers does not mean like God is, is, is doing his, his thing in heaven, just whatever he's doing. Uh, forgive me, for, I'm not being, dis- uh, you understand, he's just kind of, oh, I forgot Noah. And I remember, oh, I forgot I have this guy. He's by himself out there on this boat. I better do something for him. No, the word remember is the word zakher. It's where we get our name Zechariah, which means the Lord remembers me or the Lord thinks upon me. The Lord uh, dwells on me. He thinks about me. The Lord will not forget you. Think about the impact here that God will not forget. It might feel like the whole world has been destroyed, but God still sees you when you feel invisible. This is the same kind of thing that Hagar says when she is in the wilderness being abandoned by her her family. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? She recognized, Hagar did, that God sees her and God sees you and God knows you and God recognizes you and God remembers you. And when you're going through a hard time, when you feel like the whole world has died outside and you are, you are alone and you are, you are not, you're saved, but you're wondering, God remembers you. Verses two through five, the waters receded and the ark rested on the 17th day of the seventh month in the mountains of Ararat. And here we go. An important thematic word for this chapter is introduced. It's interesting that the rest happened on the seventh month here in the 17th day. That's, you know, God rested on the seventh day. And as the ark rested, the name of Noah is Noach. The name rest or the word rest is Nuach. So Noah's ark rested there. We see in verses 6 through 12 that Noah lets out some birds. We don't have time to read all this tonight, but you'll You'll notice in this passage that the raven was sent out. Why did he send out a raven? Uh, that's a fascinating question because we don't really know. The Bible doesn't tell us explicitly, but uh, there's, when you think about what ravens do and what ravens are scavengers, and ravens can eat carrion, they can eat flesh. And some people have suggested, some of the commentators I read suggested that what Noah was doing was he wouldn't know what it looked like out there. And he had no idea the extent of the damage and how much the world had changed, and that probably any body had been buried under so much mud. He had no idea. 
So he's sending out a raven wondering if it's going to bring back some sort of flesh or something. He doesn't know. So in sending out the, the, the first bird, then he sends out a second bird. He sends out the, uh, the dove. He doesn't know what he's going to find when he gets off the ark. Finally, the dove returns with an olive branch, and he knows that the waters have receded enough to open the door, and the ground was dry. Look at verse 15. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out, this is chapter 8, verse 15. Go out of the ark, you and your wife, your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, his sons, his wife, and his son's wife with him, every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the earth. The animals were to repopulate the earth. Every animal, according to its families, went out of the ark, and God's saving work was accomplished. Can you imagine the desolate place he found himself? As Noah walks out of the ark, he is one who has been remembered. God remembers Noah. What kind of thoughts would you have had coming out of an ark, looking at the desolation around you? I would have had a lot of thoughts. I would have probably thought, okay, Lord, that was really, really scary, and it doesn't look very good out here. Uh, what's next? Uh, are you safe? Is this, uh, uh, what are we going to do? I mean, uh, it's interesting if you keep reading in about Noah's life, the kinds of things that he does next are very much in keeping with someone who's gone through a lot of trauma and gone through, some, gone through a lot of difficulty in his life. But what does God do? God makes a covenant with him. God looks at Noah and he says, I'm going to make a promise to you. And what Noah does is Noah worships. Noah, verse 20, it says, built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offer burnt offerings on the altar. Noah immediately worships God. He recognizes his salvation is from the Lord, and he worships God, and then God makes a covenant with him. There's another reference to that very important word. Look at verse 21. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. The Lord said to him in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. God promises a couple things. I will never again do this. I will never flood the earth again. And I will never, he says, destroy every man from the earth. He says, while this remains, now there are seasons. There are cold and heat, winter and summer. It will not be destroyed ever again. This is the covenant God makes with Abraham, I mean, I'm sorry, with, um, with Noah. And if you just go one more verse into the next chapter, it says, so God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They are to repeat what God had given Adam and Eve as their command, fill the earth. Now, this theme of judgment and salvation, how do we see this play out in all of Scripture? I I think about as Christians, we have the benefit of progressive revelation. We have the benefit of knowing who Christ is and seeing God working out His judgment and salvation through all of Scripture. We have a huge benefit. So, as we look at this, let's think about a few things. Number one, God cannot allow lawlessness and sin to continue. This is both comforting and frightening. 
that God is a God of judgment, and He will judge sin, and that's comforting for those who are not involved in sin. But if you're involved in sin, and if you love sin, that's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. But God always gives mercy over time. Not immediately. He won't judge immediately, but He will surely judge. I was thinking about this. have some verses for you here that deal with this particular topic. In Exodus 32, the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out Bought him out of my book. This is speaking specifically of Moses asking to take the place of the people. Ezekiel 18, God says, Behold, all sins are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul whose sins shall die. God will bring lawlessness, judgment upon lawlessness. James 1.5, When desire is conceived, it brings forth, forth sin. And when sin, it's full grown, brings forth death. In Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Lawlessness cannot go unanswered, but God who gives the answer. He gives the answer, and He gives us salvation. This is the joyful part. Like the ark saved Noah, and like the ark was the only way they were going to be saved, we see the second half of this verse. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have salvation through the one who died for our sins. And we can say amen to this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. Amen to that. We can be saved through Jesus Christ. Look at this, 1 Peter chapter 2, He Himself bore our sins on His own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. You don't have to face the punishment for your sin. Your sin will be punished. It either has been punished by Jesus on the cross, or you will bear that punishment yourself as a condemned person. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, Paul says. What a great name of salvation. And of course, what a great word of salvation. John 3.16, you know these verses, but look all the way through verse 18. He says, God loved the world in this way, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And here is where the ark becomes a great analogy, a great picture of what we are in Christ, saved in Christ. Those who are in the ark are saved. Those who are outside the ark perish. Those who are in Christ are saved. Those who are outside Christ are not. And the picture is given to us clearly. In fact, the last thing I wanted to mention was the idea of covenant, that God establishes covenant with Abraham, and He establishes a new covenant with us. We see this in a couple places in the Bible, of course, predicted in Jeremiah 33. But then in Matthew 26, Jesus says this, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. God's promise, God's covenant with us is based upon His salvation or upon His cruc crucifixion on the cross. And the book of Hebrews, the writer of the book of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 9.15, for this reason, He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Friends, we have a God who is a righteous judge, who has not only promised to judge, but has promised to save. 
will you be saved? If you trust in Jesus, you will be. If you are in Christ, you have salvation now and for eternity. If you have not trusted in Jesus and you hope that the preaching is not true, or you hope that, that you can work your way to heaven on your own, you will be outside of that salvation, and there's nothing that can be done for you. Please come to Christ. If you already have come to Him, be a preacher of righteousness. Call for others to come. The, 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 the path is, is there before us. Christ calls, calls all men to come to Him and be saved. Would you do the same with those around you? Let's close in prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you for this message from the book of Genesis that teaches us about your saving grace, your saving power, your power to judge. It is sobering to think about your judgment and your salvation. It's very sobering for us to consider how serious sin is and how wicked man can become the corruption of all flesh. And as we think about the wickedness that came before your decisions to judge the earth, uh, Lord, we are humbled that, that and thankful that you've said you will not do that again. But Lord, we ask you as we sang tonight, Lord, come quickly. There is another judgment coming. Well, this judgment is not with water, it's with fire. And as you will judge the earth in the last days, we're thankful that you have saved us and redeemed us so that we might be saved through Jesus Christ. Father, if there's someone here tonight who does not yet know you as their Savior, I pray that they would recognize their need to come to the one who can save them. No church, no family, no good works can do that. Only Jesus Christ, who has the gift of salvation, who is the way, the truth, and the life can be their salvation. May they come to that tonight. Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy in showing mercy here to Noah and his family, this favor they found in your eyes, a willingness to go and to, be, uh, to build this ark so they might be saved. We might be here today because of them. We thank you, Lord, for your, your goodness and mercy you showed to him. Now, as we go our ways, Lord, I pray we remember your salvation in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, let's close with a song. Do you have one picked out? 317. Why don't you stand? We'll close. Eric will come and lead us. 317.